Psalm 85, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin, Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and shall make his footsteps our pathway. What a picture of the incarnation of Christ right there. It says, truth shall spring out of the earth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. He is our righteousness. What a picture of the incarnation of Christ. Our uh, sermon today is Exodus 19. It's verses 1 through 9. It's entitled, If You Will. And before I read you our verses, I want to say something I also said during the Prophecy Update is that uh, we have a gentleman named Doug Callerson who has been uh, painting paintings for each of our sermons. I uh, saw one that I liked once. I said, could I use this? And uh, he said, no problem. And uh, since then, each sermon, he goes to the next week when I announce what it'll be, and he pulls out the verses and he does a painting for it. And uh, I wanted to thank him for that. And uh, that means a lot to me. And they, his wife actually emailed me and, or posted on Facebook to me, and she said, um, we're so thankful because, you know, nobody's ever taken an interest in his work for their ministry. And I said, you've got to be kidding. I'm the one that's thankful. This guy is doing this out of the goodness of his heart. And I thought, what, what a, a, a wonderful thing for him to do. And uh, what, you know, here they are, they're in Ireland, and he's supporting the Superior Word Church as a member of this church as an offering in this way. And uh, Doug, if you uh, cannot do one, because of whatever reason, don't feel like, you know, you've let us down or anything. This is, even if you never do another one, I am so filled with just gratitude over the past few weeks of having uh, shared your beautiful artwork. So uh, there you go. Thank you, Doug. Uh, Exodus 19, one, ver uh, 1 through verse 9. 19, 1, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded. And then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud 
that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask for uh, you to be with us today and uh, open our minds and our hearts to this precious passage and uh, illuminate the words to us so that we can understand more fully what you are telling us as we lead up to the uh, giving of your Ten Commandments and all that that entails. Thank you for this passage, and uh, once again, please just open our hearts and minds to it. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Question for you. Was anyone here in this building present at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? No, I didn't think so. And yet, in today's passage, God speaks of his voice as something that is to be obeyed by the people at all times. Now, how can his voice be obeyed if it was only that one time in history that he spoke to the people in this way? How is that possible? It's because even though there is no audible voice issuing forth, there is still the written account of his voice at Sinai, through the prophets, through the mouth of Christ Jesus, and through the hand of the apostles. The word is the voice, merely in written form. And so it's incumbent on us to pay heed to that voice as it slowly reveals the plan of redemption found in the pages of the Bible. As we read it, we should tremble, knowing with all certainty that it is the voice of our Creator. Our text verse comes from Ezra chapter 9. It's the fourth verse. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me, because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. In Ezra's time, there were those who had transgressed the law of the Lord. This distressed the people because they had already been punished once for having rejected the word of the Lord. They were hardly back in the land from that exile, and the people had started down the wrong path once again. Those who trembled at the words of God gathered together in hopes of withholding his wrath from coming upon them once again. It is people like this that are rewarded for their faithfulness before God. Do you tremble at the words of God? Do you feel fear and remorse when you sin against him? He is a loving father, but he is also a just judge. Let us tremble at the words of God and do our utmost to be obedient and faithful to them. This is what he will tell the people that he expects of them in today's passage. And so let's look into this word and let us accept it for what it is the very words of our Creator revealed to us. It's all to be found in His superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through His word today. And may His glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is Israel camped before the mountain. It's verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... The words Bachodesh Hashelishi, or in the new moon, the third, indicate that this is the first day of the third month. The new moon sets the timing of the new month in the Hebrew calendar. It is commonly accepted that unless the day of the month is given, then the first day of the month is the default day to be considered. The Bible provides specificity, but it also requires study and understanding to grasp these nuances. This would then be the month of Sivan. It corresponds with around the end of May to early June. It is now the 47th day after departing from Egypt. The Passover was on the 14th of the first month, and Israel departed on the night of the 15th day of the first month. Counting 15 to 30, because you also count the first day, is a total of 16 days. 
then the second month would be 30 days long. This then would be equal 46 full days. Now it is the first day of the third month or day 47. Now, why should we care about this? Stay tuned to this same channel next week and you'll see, okay? Verse one continues. On the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Three names are given in the first verse, Israel, Egypt, and Sinai. Israel means he strives with God. It is a double entendre. He either strives with God on his behalf or he is strives with God against his will. But either way, Israel strives with God. Egypt means double distress, and Sinai means bush of the Lord. A picture is being formed already in verse 1 for us to think about and to contemplate. If, as traditional scholars believe, Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula, then the wilderness of Sinai is a spacious plain known as Ur-Raha. The mountain itself there in Sinai is actually a collection of three peaks which consist of Jebel Musa, Mount Catherine, and Ras Sufsafeh. This corresponds with the writings of Flavius Josephus and many other ancient witnesses. Other scholars disagree and they place Sinai in various other locations. But the trek so far, the meticulous recording of the trek and the timing involved in that trek seems to lead to this area of the Sinai Peninsula. It is where St. Catherine's Monastery is. Ellicott eloquently describes the choice of Mount Sinai for the giving of the law. He says Mount Sinai was a place which nature, not art, had made conspicuous, for it was the highest of all that range of mountains. Thus God put contempt upon cities and palaces, setting up his pavilion on the top of a mountain in a barren desert. Verse 2. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. The last time Rephidim was mentioned was in Exodus 17, verse 8, in the war with Amalek. After that came the insert account of Jethro and his advice to Moses, which was placed there prior to the giving of the law, even though chronologically it came almost a year later. That encompassed all of chapter 18. Now we are told that they have departed Rephidim for the wilderness of Sinai without any intervening stops. This then does correspond with Numbers 33, verse 15. It agrees that there were no stops between the two. Rephidim today is accepted to be a place which is called Wadi Farain. To get to the wilderness of Sinai, or Ur-Raha, required one of two treks. One would be about 18 miles and the other about 25 miles. Both distances are attainable in a single day of long walking, and so the account of the past does match what is acknowledged today. Verse 2 continues, So Israel camped there before the mountain. This area of Ur-Raha is described as a plain, which is about two miles long and about a half a mile wide, which is enclosed between two precipitous mountain ranges of black and yellow granite and having at its end the prodigious mountain block of Roth, Ras Sufsafeh. It is rather flat, and stunted tamarisk bushes cover the ground. According to writings about it, of all of the places in the Sinai Peninsula, it has the most abundant supply of water to be found. Verse 3, And Moses went up to God. What is implicit but unstated is that the pillar of cloud and fire moved to the mountain, and it rested there. Moses, having been to this spot before, now returns to it and ascends the mountain in order to determine God's will for the people after their long, arduous trek. Unfortunately, 
unless you're reading this in Hebrew, it's pretty certain that your Bible doesn't translate these words properly. Again, as has occurred at very important times throughout the Exodus account, there is a definite article in front of the word God. It says, Umoshe Allah el ha Elohim. And Moses went up to the God. What is happening here is what was spoken about in Exodus 3 when Moses first met the Lord in the burning bush. The term God was used many, many times in that chapter, but the term Ha Elohim or the God was used just five times at key points in that narrative. In verse 312, using the definite article, it said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the God on this mountain. The term the God or Ha Elohim is going to be used three times in this chapter. Verse 3 continues, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Suddenly, after going up to the God, it says that the Lord, meaning Jehovah, called to him from the mountain. This is the same idea, but in reverse as to what occurred in Exodus 3, verse 4, which said, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. The same Lord who called from the bush is the God who now calls to Moses from the mountain. The promise of Exodus 3, verse 12 is now coming to its fulfillment. The God, who is the Lord, will be worshipped on this mountain. Moses has accomplished the mission that he so reluctantly accepted, and he has led Israel to their anticipated meeting with the God, who is Jehovah. The name Lord or Jehovah is going to be used 18 times in this chapter. As a side note, Stephen refers to this account in Acts 7, verse 30, where he says Moses met an angel of the Lord. What is implied there is that it is the Lord Jesus, the messenger of God with whom Moses met. Verse 3 continues, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. This is a very unique and interesting set of words here. The name Jacob has not been mentioned since Exodus 3, verse 6, when we read this. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. However, the name Israel or Israelite has been used 104 times since then. And further, the term house of Jacob is very rare in scripture. This is the second of only 18 times that it's going to be used. And the book of Isaiah uses it the most nine times. The first time it was used was in Exodus 46, verse 27, during the record of those who went from Canaan down to Egypt with Jacob. Here, both terms, the house of Jacob and the children of Israel, are named in the same verse. This group of people who once was lowly and humbled when they entered Egypt, just as Jacob was when he fled up to Padanaram, and he had later increased and became a great nation, just as when he returned home from Padanaram, they did so in Egypt. Thus, the term, the children of Israel, is the increase of Jacob. Both terms are used here to reflect their humble origins as well as their national status. The only time the term is used in the Psalms, the same general thought is recorded. Here's what it says there. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became a sanctuary and Israel his dominion. 
It is to this house of Jacob, who are the children of Israel, that he now very precisely and succinctly states three things which he has accomplished for them. And I'll give them to you after a short poetic break. I have borne you on eagle's wings, tenderly caring for you, raising you out of the nest. You are ready for a new way. I will show you a marvelous things in all that I do. In obedience, you I will test, and in you, marvels, I will display. How I love you, O Israel, but do you love me? Will you follow and pay heed? In advance to you, I will tell that you will fall away, and you will do so with speed. But after my anger subsides, I will gather you again to me, and once more I will place you high among the nations. My word is my oath, and surely you will see. So believe my word and rejoice in those expectations. Our second thought today is if. It's verses four, four through six. Verse four. You have seen atem retim. The words in this verse are plural. The Lord is speaking to all Israel when he says you. Verse four going on. What I did to the Egyptians. Asher asiti le mitzrayim. What I did to Egypt. Most translations say Egyptians, but what occurred happened to all people, to the animals, and to the land. The words are surely speaking in an all-inclusive manner concerning the great deeds of the Lord. In only a few words, a recap is made concerning the marvelous miracles and wonders which he brought upon them from the first plague of blood all the way through until the waters of the Red Sea closed over Egypt's armies. Verse 4 going on, And how I bore you on eagles' wings. Secondly, he notes how he bore them on eagle's wings. The word translated here as eagle is nesher, and it's used for the first of just 26 times in all of the Bible. It doesn't necessarily mean an eagle, though. The Haw Theological Word Book of the Old Testament notes that the Semitic languages actually tend to lump the large soaring birds into one family. Therefore, it can include the eagle, the hawk, the harrier, the vulture, and so on. In the case of this verse, the eagle more naturally brings out the sense for our imagination. It is a powerful and beautiful bird of prey. The theme here concerning being born on eagle's wings is mentioned elsewhere in scripture. It is highly refined in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where it says this, As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. The eagle will hover over its young, protecting them from the sun, from the cold, and from other potentially harmful elements which arise. During the entire time of their growth in the nest, the mother feeds them and prepares them for the moment when they will first take flight. Eventually, when the young eagle has developed enough, the parent will stir up the nest in order to lure the now ready fledgling for that precious moment. As they take to flight, the parent will hover around them, fluttering in an encouraging manner. The idea of being lifted up on its wings comes from the parent flying beneath the young, probably to provide lift for the tired bird and to ensure that it wouldn't fall to the earth. However, there are no reliable reports of a bird actually flying on its parent's wings, and thus it is speaking in a phenomenological sense. Probably the most famous of such passages in all of Scripture is that of Isaiah chapter 40, where it says this, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? 
His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In looking at these passages, we can see that like the eagle developing in a nest, Israel developed as it were in Egypt. When the time was right and she was ready for her flight, the Lord aroused like the parent and fluttered in order to prompt Israel to depart the nest. The symbolism is both highly tender and exceedingly beautiful. They went from embryo to fully developed and at that time the Lord carried them upon himself even to himself. Verse 4 continues, and brought you to myself. Ve'avi etchem alai. This is the third thing which the Lord claims to have done for Israel. He brought them to himself. There are two major ways in which these words are viewed. The first is that he brought them to himself at Sinai where they could fellowship with him. This is the prominent view among scholars. But this then neglects the fact that the Lord was there with them in Egypt as an eagle is there with the young, protecting them and watching over them until they're ready for the flight. It also neglects the fact that the Lord has been with them throughout all of the plagues and throughout the past 47 days of wilderness wanderings. Instead, he is certainly saying that I have brought you out of where you were. You were in a land of corrupting influences. You were living in a manner contrary to my glory and my righteous standards. And you have been brought to this place where I will reveal these to you. I will show you what is right, proper, and acceptable concerning worship of me your creator, and now your redeemer. This is certainly what is intended by the words ve'avi et chem alai. He is speaking in a manner as if the matter is accomplished because he is God and he will complete what he has begun. Verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, ve'ata im shemoa tishmeu, and you, if listening, you will listen. It is asking for obedience. The Hebrew word im, or if, is a conditional word. If you hear the words, it doesn't mean that you will truly listen to them. But if you do, if you hear them when they are proclaimed and then act on them as intended, then there will be a relationship between us which is unique in all the world. It needs to be noted that the word koli, or my voice, is equated directly with the word of God. In other words, it is true that the people at Sinai will hear the word of God spoken and they're going to be quaking in their boots when they do. But those after this time will not. And yet they are asked to continue to hearken to Koli or my voice. Thus, the written word of God carries the same weight and the same authority as the spoken word of God because it is, in fact, the spoken word of God. If this isn't a terrifying thought for those who would misuse scripture, then that heart is hardened even to foolishness. The Lord is asking them to hear and to apply the words of his voice to their lives. Verse 5 continues, And keep my covenant. Adam Clark very well sums up these words and their significance for us. These words mean that they were to, according to him, not only copy in their lives the Ten Commandments, but they must receive and preserve the grand agreement made between God and man by sacrifice in reference to the incarnation and death of Christ. For from the foundation of the world, the covenant of God ratified by sacrifices referred to this. 
And now the sacrificial system was to be more fully opened by the giving of the law. Clark is right in that the covenant which will be presented to Israel is in reference to the death of Christ. The sacrificial system which they will be introduced to is explicitly explained in the book of Hebrews, particularly chapters 9 and 10. At this time, the Lord is asking them to do these things. And if they do, there will be an honor bestowed upon this people, which is unmatched and without parallel in all of human history. Verse 5 continues, Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. The words here are about as important to understand as any to be found in all of Scripture. Israel is promised that if they are obedient to the word of the Lord and faithful to his covenant, they will be a special treasure to him. The word for special treasure is segula. This is the first of eight times it's going to be used in Scripture, the last being Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 17. What the Lord means by this term will be explained in the next verse. But to the people, it was a word which held meaning in and of itself, and so they would understand it immediately. It comes from an unused root word meaning to shut up. The idea is that something precious like a jewel or a peculiar treasure would be shut up because it was special. This word, though only used a limited number of times, is filled with spiritual and theological treasure. Solomon uses the term in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 with these words. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures, that word segula, of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. However, after only a few more verses, Solomon will note that it, along with all his other riches, were merely vanity. In Solomon's words, we can see that special treasure, apart from God, has no meaning at all. This is all implied in the Lord's word to the people right here. The conditional word, if, was given them to show them this. And this word of warning, if, can be summed up perfectly in the last use of the word segula in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 3, we read this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day, I make them my jewels, my segula, my special treasure, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Those who feared the Lord are those included in the if of his promises. The grace of the promise to Israel is given in advance of the giving of the law, but it carries a very, very large and consequential word within it, if. Only those who hold the Lord in such high esteem as to hearken to his voice and be obedient to his covenant will likewise be esteemed by the Lord. How sad that so many miss this and how sad that so many miss it still today. Verse 5 continues, for all the earth is mine. The previous words said that they would be the Lord's special treasure above all people, not out of all people. These words now explain that, for all the earth is mine. The words, however, have to be taken in light of what is later said in Luke chapter 4. Here's what Luke says. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him, meaning Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And the devil said to him, all this I will give you 
and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. The earth is the Lord's, but the control of it was delivered to the devil when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. In order for Israel to be the Lord's special treasure, he redeemed them. In the act of that redemption, they again belonged to him. But does this mean that all of Israel is, by default, the Lord's? The answer is no. This is seen from Jesus' own words in John chapter 8, where he says this, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. In this, we see that physical redemption does not automatically follow through with spiritual redemption. Man remains in sin, and sin must be atoned for. The Lord will provide a means for the atonement of sin within the covenant which he will make with Israel. But even that only points to the true atonement, which is found in Christ Jesus alone. Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. The word kingdom implies a king. Israel was intended to be a theocracy. It was a nation with the Lord as its king. In this position as a people, they were to be priests. The word you is emphatic, and thus it is making a distinction between them and all the other nations. This should be taken in two different ways. First, all Israelites were entitled to come near before God without an intermediary. In 1 Samuel 1, Hannah came before the Lord and she prayed to him directly. The Lord heard her prayer and responded to it, giving her a son. In 1 Chronicles chapter 4, Jabez called out to the God of Israel and he heard and granted his request. These are just two of the countless times in the Bible that record the prayers of the people performing the priestly role of speaking directly to God. The people also brought their offerings to him directly. They paid him their vows and they communed intimately with him at feasts and even in the common days of the year. The second way that they were to be considered as a kingdom of priests is that they had priests, the sons of Levi and Aaron, to conduct their specific priestly duties on behalf of the people before the Lord, their king. No other nation had such a system, and no other nations had priests who were considered acceptable to conduct these priestly functions in connection with his law. Verse 6 continues, And a holy nation... The idea of holy is that it is set apart. Israel was to be a holy nation because they were to be set apart from the world, living in a manner acceptable to the Lord based on the laws that he would give them. They were to be consecrated to his service and then conduct themselves according to that consecration. This holiness wasn't something conferred and, that which, and then which carried on all by itself. This is shown throughout the entire law. When someone did something wrong, or when they had a certain type of defect, such as leprosy, they were to be cut off or kept separate from the congregation. Probably the most explicit example of something defiling that which is holy is found in the book of Haggai. Wonderful words here. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it become unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. 
Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Where holiness does not transfer to that which is defiled, that which is defiled does corrupt that which is holy. Being a holy nation implied first being purified and then being separate in order to maintain that holiness through adherence to the law of the Lord. The holiness of Jehovah is the origination and cause of the holiness of the people. The giving of the law is how that holiness will come about. Without that, they would have remained defiled. Adherence to that law is how it is maintained. From this process, they became acceptable to him as a people to dwell among and receive their praise and worship. Verse 6 continues. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Out of curiosity, I counted the total number of words in the Hebrew which comprise the words the Lord told to Moses for him to repeat to Israel. This is from verse 4 through the first part of verse 6. It is just 37 words. The conditions were laid down and the promises were made in a mere 37 words. As the pulpit commentary notes, the question was a simple one. Would they accept the covenant or no upon the conditions offered? It was not likely that they would reject such gracious proposals. The decision of the people based on these 37 words has carried them through much blessing and many, many curses for the last 3,500 years. But through it all, Israel has survived. The Lord has remained faithful to his end of the deal despite their chronic faithlessness. A kingdom of priests holy to the Lord, those whose prayers and offerings are acceptable to me. This is what you will be if you heed my word. I tell you this now, speaking plainly. I shall purify you and you shall be holy and you shall continue to observe as I command you to do. If you continue in obedience, it will go well, you see. I have a wonderful plan of the ages, which includes you. And someday a new covenant I will make. It will be between you and me, yes, between us. The covenant will be made for your sake and it will come through the shed blood of my son, Jesus. Our third thought, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's verses seven through nine. Verse seven, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. In order to transmit the message to the congregation, Moses called for the elders and relayed the words to them. Several translations use the literal words of the Hebrew, translating them directly by saying that Moses laid before their faces all the words of the Lord. Before their faces is an idiomatic Hebraism that simply means before or in the presence of. After speaking to the elders of the tribes, the words would go from tribe to family to household to individual. Very quickly, the message would have been distributed to the ears of the congregation. Verse 8, then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Without even hearing the words of the covenant, the people as a united whole agreed to its terms. The word for together is yachad. It signifies that they were as one, wholly united in their approval. The 37 words were agreed to, including its conditional nature concerning obedience, as well as the benefits, which will stem from a positive discharge of those expectations. Verse 8 continues, So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Although not explicit, to communicate the message to the people and then to carry it back to the Lord would have made it the next day. Therefore, this is now the 48th day since the Exodus. 
Moses carrying back the words of the Lord was not a necessary thing for his information. The Lord is fully aware of all things. Rather, it is a necessary part of the people's instruction. Moses is shown to the people to be the messenger and the mediator of the coming covenant. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. In response to the affirmation of the people to accept the stipulations they had been presented, the Lord tells Moses what to expect. I will come to you in the thick cloud. The word thick is av, and it is introduced into the Bible here at this time. The Hebrew reads, I will come to you in the thickness of a cloud. The thickness will be explained in verse 18 as the smoke of a furnace. The cloud then is not the glory of the Lord, but that which veils the glory of the Lord. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. But in order to conceal his majesty and save the people from perishing, the cloud was given to obscure his radiance. Even the shining countenance of Moses, which merely reflected his glory, had to be veiled from the people. In giving this marvelous manifestation of himself, two purposes would be made known. The first is the absolute divine majesty of the Lord, which they were to remember and to fear, understanding that he was not just a magician's trick which was conjured up by Moses. And secondly, it was to validate that Moses had, in fact, been chosen as the Lord's representative before the people and the people's representatives before the Lord. The you in and believe you is emphatic. They were expected to accept and believe Moses for all time. In part, at least, this has been realized. Moses is revered among the people and is considered their great lawgiver. Unfortunately, the actual significance of both who the Lord is and what was Moses' role and what it was for the people had been warped and twisted in a million ways over the centuries. But there is a germ of understanding, at least in most Jewish people. What the people will be prepared for is an eternal obligation on all men. Jesus, speaking of this very same law that the people are about to receive, says these words to us. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Verse 9 finishes with these words. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Doesn't it seem odd that this verse is included? It's almost identical in repeat of the statement made in verse 8. It seems both out of place and unnecessary in the extreme, unless one considers the significance of the words. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. This is not a repeat of information that transpired between the two parties, Moses and the Lord. Rather, it is a statement concerning the two parties, Israel and the Lord. The repetition is given to show that the words of Israel had been transmitted to the Lord. In essence, it is the sealing of the agreement. Israel has obligated itself to its future with these words. The words of the Lord through Ezekiel sum up this statement, which is given here in verse 9. Let me read this to you. Ezekiel 20, verse 32. What you have in mind shall never be. They're asking to be like all the nations of the world. And the Lord says, what you have in mind shall never be. When you say we will be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries serving wood and stone. It'll never happen because of those 37 words which were agreed upon during these verses today. Israel as a people committed itself to the Lord and the Lord committed himself to them. 
But we cannot forget that conditional word concerning this coming covenant, if Israel will be holy, if they maintain holiness. Israel will be secure if they rest in the Lord. But when they fail to meet the conditions, it would be different. Within the covenant are promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Israel could not claim to be the Lord's special treasure if they were disobedient to his word and to his covenant. Instead, they could only expect his wrath. The rest of the Old Testament will reveal Israel's complete inability to either heed his word or keep his covenant. In the New Testament, Paul gives several reasons for the giving of the law. The first is to show God's perfect standard. The second is to show the impossibility of any person meeting that standard. The third is to show how utterly sinful sin is to God. And the fourth is to show us our desperate need for something else. It is to show us our need for Christ Jesus. The law was intended to lead Israel directly to their need for their Messiah. And so in Jeremiah 31, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The new covenant was not given to the Gentile people of the world. Hate to break the news to, you know, uh, replacement theologians all over the place. It was not. It was given to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. However, as a nation, they rejected it. And as Paul explains, they took another path. He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Therefore, God set Israel aside and he did something rather unexpected. He allowed Gentiles to partake of the commonwealth of Israel until Israel was ready to receive God's righteousness instead of their own futile attempts at doing so. During Israel's time of being set aside, which Paul explains in detail in the book of Romans, the terms of the new covenant were offered even to Gentiles who heard and gladly received it. The kingdom of priests moved from Israel to the church, regardless of national heritage. We are now his segula, his special people. Paul, writing to Titus, who is a Gentile and the church planner of Gentile-led churches, writes this for us to see who we are because of our faith in Jesus Christ. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, meaning Jesus Christ, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, a segula, zealous for good works. And we are now his nation of kings and priests. We're called out from the world, both Jew and Gentile. 
John informs us of this in the last book of the Bible when writing to the seven Gentile-led churches in Asia. He writes, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. However, and to the shame of replacement theologians everywhere, God is not done with Israel. The structure of the Bible itself shows the pattern of redemptive history. Paul's letters come after the book of Acts to indicate the time of Gentile-led church age. But immediately following that comes the books addressed once again to the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel. Peter, whose letter is not addressed to Gentiles, but to Jews, and which is placed after the Gentile-led church age epistles, says this to his audience, but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. In these verses, Peter quotes the same words from Hosea that Paul uses in Romans 9 to show that the Gentiles who were once not a people had become the people of God. Peter, using those same verses, now shows that the Jews, who were not a people, are once again now the people of God. It is the restoration of Israel, which is based on the words of the Lord found in today's verse, specifically the humongous word, if. The new covenant was given in place of the old. The old is obsolete, but the promise to Israel is not. The new covenant was promised while the old was in effect and therefore it pertains to those who are coming out of the Old Covenant. This is the very purpose of the last seven years of Daniel's 77s, which is a 490-year period given to Israel to do exactly this, to receive their Messiah and be reconciled to God through his shed blood. Has God abandoned his people, Israel? Perish the thought. They abandoned him, but he not only will not, he cannot abandon them. The God of the Bible is unswervingly faithful to his word. It is the most reliable word of all. If he says he will accept you, then you should believe it. Trust that all of your mistakes can and will be washed away if you will just believe what he has accomplished for you. If you would like to receive Jesus today, and I'm talking to any Jew out there that's watching this sermon and confused about what Christ did, let me explain it to you now. The Bible says that we have all sinned, Jew and Gentile alike and that we are outside of God's promises because of our sin. And then he makes promises to people in the Bible, but they are conditional. They come with the word if. If you do these things, and if you do these things, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with Paul over here about Jews who say, oh, I'm saved because I'm a Jew, I'm going to heaven. He doesn't even believe in heaven. The guy we talked about this morning, he's secular. He doesn't even believe in heaven, but when you say where are you gonna go when you die, he says to heaven. By default, I get to go because I'm a Jew. And the Bible never teaches that kind of stuff. No person is right before God, no person, without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament, as Adam Clark noted during this verse, everything points to the coming Christ who would sacrifice himself for the sins of the people of the world. And unless you receive the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you will never enter God's paradise. And further, the law is obsolete. That is explicit numerous times in the New Testament. If you continue to work deeds of the law, in order to be pleasing to God, you are offending God because he said, I've done it all in my son. What more can you add to what God has done? 
That's what grace is. It's getting what you don't deserve. If you try to add to that, then it's not grace anymore. You've set aside the grace of God and you stand condemned. You are a debtor to the entire law. So, O oh Jew, if you are watching this today and Gentile as well, receive Jesus Christ. Just simply say, I have sinned. I know that he can take away my sin and I trust in him and I rest in him alone. Nothing else. You want to observe a Sabbath day, go ahead. But if you're doing it to be in favor with God, then you're setting aside the grace of God in Christ. Do whatever you want as far as observing a holy day, but make sure that you do it out of the grace of Christ and not because you think you're earning heaven. You're not, okay? Receive Jesus Christ. Our closing verse today is from Isaiah 66. It's verses one and two. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Remember that. This is his word. It is as if he is speaking to us right now from Mount Sinai. The whole earth is shaking. There's the furnace, the fire. It's just as if he is speaking right now when we look at the pages of the Bible. And yet we say, I don't need that. I can listen to any crazy preacher with any crazy theology. You are self-deceived if you believe that. This is God's word, my voice. He said this in advance so that we wouldn't make this mistake. Hold fast to this word. Hold fast to this and nothing else. Don't believe crazy people with crazy theology. Next week is Exodus 19, 10 through 25. They are sobering words for the chosen nation. It's entitled, A Law of Death and Condemnation. That'll be our 53rd Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you right through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I'm so happy that Roy's gonna be out of out on Tuesday. I just am so happy about that. I tell you what, you tell him when he gets home, give him a hug from us, okay? I know that it's wonderful. Sorry about that, I just had to say that. We've got a guy that's been cooped up in a place for weeks and weeks now and he's gonna be able to go back home and it just came to mind, I had to get it out. Our poem today is called, If is a Conditional Word. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of e the land of Egypt by and by, on the same day as the record does tell, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai by God's care and camped in the wilderness. So Israel before the mountain camped there. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. He did tell, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I have done all these things. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant so divine, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel, the congregation. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people as the Lord demanded and laid before them all these words, which to him the Lord commanded. Then all the people answered together and said, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord as a humble token. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will in the thick cloud come to you that when I speak with you, the people may hear and believe you forever. This they will do. 
So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. He told them this according to the holy word. Oh God, if is such a big and difficult word. When we face daily trials, we usually fail. But hallelujah to Jesus our Lord, who over the law did prevail. In him we have a greater hope, one solid and sure. Because of him we too can stand in victory and praise you with lips cleansed and pure and praise you eternally there at the glassy sea. Thank you, O God, for our Lord Jesus. Thank you, O God, for all you have done for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, what a marvelous story is unfolding before our eyes every week. Every week is something just so magnificent to imagine that you have spoken to the people of the world with your audible voice, and then it was recorded so that we could continue to tremble at the words that are before us. And forgive us when we pick up this book and when we don't treat it with the absolute magnificent care that we should, that we should tremble when we read it and to be afraid as a mirror looks back on us and shows us the sin and the depravity in our life that we tolerate when we shouldn't. Forgive us of that. Help us to trust and rest in Christ alone and in him alone. Let our hope be found. And Lord, we have Paul and Elaine who are getting in a car and driving away here in a few minutes to go uh, all the way up north. I would pray that you would get them there safely and that that baby would be delivered without any incident and that they'd be holding a new stole here really soon. To rejoice and actually I don't think it's the same last name but it's their grandchild anyway Lord we pray for that and we pray for uh, Roy to get out on Tuesday for Jim to get better for Darla her hospital appointment today to find out what's wrong and to take care of her and all the other people that are traveling and they're sick oh Lord tend to your people oh God we'll be sure to praise you in the process we love you and we do praise you I think I forgot to mention Jim did I mention him Lord we pray for Jim as well each of these people. And we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul writes these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he gave thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, Goodness gracious, I'm just thinking of something right now and uh, went right out of my head. Uh, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Standing here trying to give the blessing, I'm thinking, did I forget anybody to pray for? <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, you just don't want to forget anybody, and then I got all out, and I, oh, Lord, you're so good to us. I hope I haven't missed anybody. I know that uh, we have Dina, who's been gone for three weeks, and uh, I'll send her an email today, find out if she's all right, but... Uh, I hope that there's nobody else that I've forgotten here. That uh, just if there is, search them out and uh, take care of them according to your wisdom and your mercy and your grace. And uh, thank you for the week behind us. You carried us through it. We're all here safely. And I would pray for each person that's going to be traveling that they would uh, uh, be. You would lift them up as a, on <clears throat> eagles' wings and just take them safely to where they're going. Thank you for this precious word you've given us, Lord. What a gift it is. We thank you for it and we praise you for it. We just love you. We exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.